Computer, initialize Holosuite. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 2, Episode 3, The Siege. Before we continue, you can find this on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That's right, and you should absolutely find us because we enjoy interacting with everyone whenever we can. Uh, I know that just recently we had some people on our uh, Facebook page, and so that was a little bit of fun of an exchange there. So again, Facebook, Twitter, handle is The Fire Caves. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. So before we jump into our episode tonight, just want to give everybody, you know, the the housekeeping updates as we've been doing here lately. Um <laughs> Don't really. I feel like we don't really need to mention like with the with the Star Trek franchise where everything is because I mean it's pretty much obvious now. Just sign up for Paramount Plus. That's where you're going to be able to watch all the shows. Yes, DS9 and TNG are still on Netflix, but I mean I'm sure that's not going to last too much longer. I think those were just the ones that had the longest running contracts at the time. So uh, right, yeah. But then all the other all the new shows are getting ready to come out. You know, Picard, Strange New Worlds. Prodigy, all of them, they're all there, so you might as well just go there and watch them and enjoy them. Um, other than that, David, how are you doing this week? Yeah, doing great. I uh, just got done with a men's retreat with my church. It was a good time, good uh, you know, good time to spend with some other guys and spend some time with the Lord. I was uh, glad to be able to do that, take some time off from work, and then, uh, yeah, I'm back today, ready to record, and Finished out this little trilogy of ours here on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't have any issues dealing with, uh, like, travel with this whole recent uh, snow winter catastrophe, winter (laughs) storm we had here Uh, in Texas? Thankfully, so we didn't go until Friday, and it was Thursday. It was the worst. But uh, by the time I got out to my car on a Friday, most of the ice had melted off. I did turn on my car for five minutes, let some of the ice on the hood uh, kind of get a little bit of water underneath so I could pop it all uh, off. And then, yeah, after that, it was fine. The roads were pretty well clear. Um, didn't have any patches to worry about. Um, so, yeah, it was driving was fine. It was a cold weekend. There were some of the guys who, who jumped in the hot pool um, in w- one of those nights. I, I just was like, I've done it before in, in February when the weather's cold. A, a nice hot tub is, is something to enjoy, but it was just a little too cold this year around. And we had a competition amongst some of the guys. Uh, we called it uh, Polar Bears, where someone had to jump in one of the regular pools and be completely submerged and then had to come and stand out of the pool for at least 30 seconds before putting on a towel or jumping in a hot tub. Um, unfortunately, the other team won that competition, but oh well. <laughs> I didn't do it myself, I'll admit. I didn't I didn't jump in the cold weather. <laughs> 
When I, when I was in college, I was a member of my uh, our local polar bear club. Oh. And so we would do that every, I think it was, we did it twice a year. There was February and then there was right around Thanksgiving because it would really get cold. Right. And um, yeah, go out to the lake. They knock a hole in the ice on the oh, lake. Oh, man. And then dive, you, you dive right in. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, you, people would dress up in different costumes and stuff like one time uh when i did it the entire uh scooby-doo cast <laughs> jumped in you know it's a lot of and like i said it's a lot of fun but they've got like divers and stuff that are around to help you out right. and that is just it was like little charity thing you know get people oh, to sponsor good. you yeah yeah you dive in you're down for you know a few seconds and somebody like pulls you back up lets you sit there for you know like another like 30 seconds you know right. and then they haul you out um, and then you run inside and get dressed and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. But you're like, I remember when I did it, I felt like I was on fire when I got out. Like, I felt like I was hot. Yeah. You know, because everything was just so tingly and everything. Yes. So, yeah, that, <laughs> I, I don't think I would do it now. Right. That was definitely one of those because I was young and crazy. Right. Doing that. Right. But, yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, we didn't really do much here with the storm. Obviously, we just, you know, stayed indoors. School was closed. Yeah. So she got Thursday and Friday off, and so then we had the whole weekend. Mm. And of course, today she's you know crawling all over the place, so eager to like get back out and, and do things. <laughs> yeah. So can't imagine being school a kid is in session. <laughs> again yeah. this time. School Ugh. is in session tomorrow, so thank goodness I'm dropping her off and you know rolling through my days. So uh, hopefully she'll be good and tired when she comes home <laughs> from school, so we won't have any of that to worry about. Good, good. But. We are not here to discuss our personal lives. We are here to talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And we are talking about the 23rd episode in the series run. And it's, uh, again, season two, episode three, The Siege. Yeah. Great episode. Great ending to our very explosive beginning to season two. Mm. And I can't wait to get into it. So, to that end, give you a quick recap. Going to try to be brief here don't want to go through every single thing just gonna hit the highlights yeah. all right so to help recap uh this episode started off with the fact that uh we had found out some information about the circle who was in charge and uh that they didn't realize that the cardassians were helping out with uh with the circle right the infamous group the circle and uh so cisco has decided that even though Admiral Chakotay told them that they needed to abandon the station, that this is not a Federation matter, um, it can't help out. Cisco has decided that with him and a few select group of volunteers, they're going to stay behind, and they're going right. to try to hold out long enough until Kira can get the information to the Vedic Assembly and the Bajoran uh, Minister's Cabinet or whomever right. to show the proof that the Cardassians are involved. Right. So, Cisco rounds up his volunteers... They start the evacuation process. There is some issue with the evacuation because Quark has started to broker seats on the only three runabouts they have on the station to evacuate people off. So there's obviously way more people than there are seats. Quark has started to sell seats. He right. overbooks one of the runabouts. This causes an issue to where finally Lee Lellis, our Navark, steps up and mm -hmm. basically reminds the Bajorans that this is your home. Like, why are you trying yes. to leave? Like, you, you're right. from here. You're you're safe. This is for the people who are not from here who need to who need to leave. Right. So this calms things down a little bit, but of course Quark gets left behind because <laughs> his brother Rom decided to take a Davo girl. <laughs> in his place. Wouldn't you? 
<laughs> I mean, right. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, goodness. As the shuttles depart, there's also an agreement to have Kira and Dax dropped off on one of Bajor's uh, moons, where Uh 10 years ago, some resistance fighters had smuggled some suborbital fighters, I believe they're called. um, Yeah, suborbital fighters onto the planet. And so if they can get those flying, they're going to use those to go to Bajor and deliver their information. There's no guarantee they're going to be able to get it flying. That's why Dax goes, because one of her hosts had... Um, a specialty with the type of engines that were on these type of flyers. So hopefully with her expertise, they can get one of these off the ground. They go, they get dropped off. Uh, Dax doesn't like it there. It's really kind of murky and very swamp-like and whatever. (laughs) And there apparently seems to be this multi-legged... Spider-looking rat ...creature, (laughs) yeah, that's crawling around. And, you know, it freaks Dax out at first, but Kira's like, oh, don't worry about it, they're harmless. We used to eat them. She's like, oh, you used to keep them as... Yeah, Dax is like, y'all used to keep them as pets, right? She's like, oh, no, we used to eat them. It's like, that fits. That tracks. Um, So while this is all happening, finally, the Bajoran militia that's going to now occupy Deep Space Nine arrives. The station is dark, there's no one around, and the military leader who's come on, he's kind of cautious. He's like... uh, I don't think that they just abandoned this place. Like, there's too much. The significance of the station is too much. Uh, The other guy that he's with is like, nah, screw that. They gave it up. Mm -hmm. We're here. This is ours now. And he's trying to caution them, but, you know, to no avail. Um, So then uh, Minister Jaro is contacted by General Krim, who's one of the Bajorans, Mm -hmm. who comes to the station. And the general's like, yeah, it looks like everybody kind of left. And Jaro's like, okay, well, you know, just be sure because right. he reminds them about Lee Nollis and like he's like Lee would never give up or abandon his people. Right. He's gotta be right here somewhere. Take Lee alive. We need Lee alive. Um, you know, so now there's like this debate between them they're gonna send out search parties or not. Mm-hmm. Um the generals like don't do that because it, you know, you're dividing our forces. The other guy, he's just he's very eager and wants to kind of get out there and really wants to be the one that takes down um uh, Cisco and any any resistance. Right. Um, but the saboteurs the, who are our crew, of course, Cisco and Bashir and O'Brien and Lee Nullis, they are in the various Jeffrey's tubes equivalent on the station, right. and they're hiding out and they're doing little sabotage things here and there, yeah. not letting any systems fully come back online to stop them from being able to like scan and be located. Right. Um, Odo is literally a wall. Yeah. He's hiding <laughs> as a wall, which is a great scene where he just kind of like leans out of the wall and he warns him about a group that's coming by. And yeah. for some reason, everybody is hiding in the in these Jeffrey troops and they're wearing like leisure suits. <laughs> I have never seen such well put together uh, costumage for rebels yeah. ever, right? So they just, well, we'll get to that later. It's just, you know, <laughs> that just had, I had to say it because it just stood out in my head. Right. Um, Bashir is the first one to end up capturing any group of of the Bajor militia that had come on board the station, and he, he rounds up five prisoners for them, and then um, we later see that O'Brien and Lee Nullis arranged some kind of sabotage from Odo's office, and again, all this stuff is just to slow down the takeover of the station, and it's to give Kira more time so that she can get her mission uh, to the... Bajoran ministers. So back right. on that planet, 
uh, Kira and Dax get one of the um, several brutal fires to work, which was a rickety thing. It's shaking. It's blowing smoke. It's all kinds of just bad. Right. And it's also really cramped, apparently. Dax is having a really hard time getting her tall frame into this thing. But they're finally able yes. to take off. They are on their way to Bajor. They end up yes. getting shot down by two different um, uh, different flyers, which was a pretty cool scene to see with the, from the interior of the ship and then the flying back and forth that they do a little bit there. But ultimately, even though they take out one of those raiders, they crash. Kira is severely injured. She orders Dax to leave her, but Dax says no. Right. Um, they try to make uh, they try to make their way anyway, and Kira eventually passes out. Right. When she wakes back up, she is in the monastery with Beryl, who has taken care of her various injuries, and they've come up with this plan to dress as uh, Vedics right. to make it into the Vedic assembly so they can deliver the information. Because on Bajor, they've pretty much gone under like martial law lockdown, right. and only Vedics are able to walk anywhere freely. So that's going to be the plan, is to get them in there to deliver their information. Right. Back on the station, Cisco's kind of running out of options, and he, you know, he's like, "We should have heard from Kira a long time ago, but you know, we haven't." Um, they're trying to figure out what their next move is going to be, and he decides that it really needs to be them confronting the military leader here with Lee. Lee needs to play that trump card of being a war hero and distinguishing himself from Minister Jaro to slow down or to potentially stop this coup. So they arrange a little, you know. Um, distraction that allows them to get into the office where the general goes when he walks to the office he's surrounded by cisco and lee and everybody else and basically lee knowledge tells him what they knew and what they were pretty much waiting on kira to give to the vedic assembly the general gets pretty upset with his second in command because because you know cisco had told his second command this a a long time ago but he didn't listen right and then um so now he's upset with him for withholding information. Meanwhile, on the planet, Kira has finally revealed herself to the Vedic Assembly and to Minister Jaro. Jaro, he seems to try to stop her, but he's a little too cool for me. Like, he doesn't really get outraged. He doesn't try to, like, step in front of her anything. He just kind of like, oh, well, you know, she's always been against me. It's no big right. deal. He's too cool for this. Um, but she holds up the pad that's got the thumb scan of the goal from the last episode right. on it. And she presents the proof. Vedic Wynn stands up and is the first one to kind of be like, well, then you would have no problem with us inspecting this manifest. Right. And uh, kind of switches on him, you know, turns the tables on Jaro. And uh, then we go back to the station. We hear that the general has been contacted. He knows that the Vedic assembly is in recess. Right. And basically that the whole change in the power structure is no longer happening. The provisional government is going to stay in power. And um, as his last final act, he turns over control of the station back to Commander Sisko. So now everything's kind of de-escalating a little bit. But the general second in command, who was really a member of the circle, apparently, he was like Jaro's, you know, inside man, basically. He can't handle the fact that they're losing. So as his last you know, last act, he attempts to shoot uh, Commander Sisko, right. but Lee Nollis jumps in the way and he hits Lee point blank in the chest with what we can only assume is a phaser on like maximum setting right. and catches him right in the chest. Lee falls, he falls, they wrestle the phaser away, and Lee dies in Sisko's arms. Right. 
and uh the episode ends with Kira kind of reflecting on the fact that, you know, Lee was a great man and it's so sad that he's gone. And even though everybody else on Bajor are celebrating, she doesn't really feel like she wants to celebrate. So she departs. Um, Cisco and O'Brien are still kind of sitting there. And O'Brien's kind of like, you know, I mean, to hear her talk about him, he was like this great larger than life figure. And Cisco just kind of reminds him of the fact that, you know, you know, your heroes are what you make of them, basically. Right. And that, you know, there was a need for Lee to be viewed a certain way, even though he fought against right. it. And that's how he's always going to remember him, as the man that the Bajorans needed him to be. Right. And that's the most important thing. And that's the episode. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, yes, those are the highlights, the broad strokes. If you want to see the whole thing and know all the ins and outs, you should go watch the episode. It's like 30 years old, so you should have seen it already. But go watch right. it. You can pause our show and come back. We'll still be here. We'll still love you, even though you haven't seen this episode that's 30 years old. And um, we'll be here to talk about it. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, I just... So what did you think of the the three-parter ending, Yeah. David? Well, I have to say the first thing and the most important thing about why this was a good episode is that it ends... The siege happens on Deep Space Nine. The first episode, we had an excursion, a rescue attack, a mission on a, on another planet. In the second episode, a lot of action happened on Bayshore. In the finale of this little trilogy, it's Deep Space Nine where all the action takes place, which is perfect. This is a show about Deep Space Nine. If we don't stay on Deep Space Nine enough, then it loses its value. So the fact that the siege occurs on Deep Space Nine, that they have to defend the station from the Bajorans in this case, um, is, I thought, was a great touch. It... Um, Great writing. That's what you want. You want the station to take us the forefront and center stage. It is our main stage, and uh, in this little uh, finale, we get that. Um, yeah, them, <laughs> them up in those. Uh, what'd you call them? The tubes. The, uh, the they're called Jeffrey's tubes on all the ships right. and stuff. You know, like on the Enterprise or on Voyager, they're always crawling through the Jeffrey's right. tubes. Here, they don't. They never really call them anything right. they don't really say what they right. are so but you're supposed to take them as the equivalent the jeffrey's tube equivalent yes. on the on the station yeah i just always laughed when we were looking at the jeffrey's tubes back on enterprise during next generation because it's like they were in designed to intentionally be uncomfortable to walk through even in the future they have tight little corridors and it didn't even have like padding on the ground they were walking across grates uh, or not even walking they were crawling they were on their knees on grates on the enterprise i was always watching jordy and data crawling through there being like like i have a my knee it hurts me a little bit like i swear in later in life i'm gonna have a bad knee i i would not be able to do that as an actor i'd be like sorry guys i can't i can't do this part i can't play this role i can't do this scene <laughs> i don't know how they did it <laughs> It just amazes me sometimes because, like, that's one of the complaints against some of the newer Trek shows. Uh, mild spoiler, we're going to talk about Discovery a little bit right. here. Um, but they, they've done some scenes where, like, the crew will be traveling from one area of the ship to the next, right? And they'll be, like, in the – they'll be in the turbo lift. Right. And instead of them showing them in the turbo lift, we can just hear them talking and we're actually watching the whole turbo lift as it moves through the ship. And there seems to be a lot of like open space. And people are like, why would there be so much open space in between the decks and everything right. else? And I, was, and I always think like, guys, what do you think it would be? Like, do you think there's just, they packed it in with cement or something? <laughs> like, no, it's, it's a structure. It's a frame. It's yeah. like a building, yeah. you know? And, uh, um, like that's what the Jeffries tubes were. Yeah. Like, if if it 
if that doesn't make sense to you, then you clearly never got the concept of Jeffrey's Tubes either. Right. Even though they've been featured on literally every Trek show, right. going back to the original where we got the Jeffrey's Tubes in the first place, that was what it was. It's a, it's that's it. It's a tube. Right. It's a corridor, right. and you have to crawl around there. It's a bunch of open space for conduits and stuff. So, yeah, we see them all the time. I think Deep Space Nine. Um, was the first one that I've seen that I can remember anyway that made them seem bigger. Yeah. In the sense that, like, we see all these people cramped into one. Right. You know? And... They were uh, certainly sitting crouched over, but as, like, a group. Yeah. Right. There's a whole group of them sitting in there, and Cisco is a big man. Like, that's what <laughs> that's what people don't really realize. I do believe that Avery Brooks is about... I'm gonna say, like, 6'2", six 6'3". Six oh. Um... Yeah, there. I'll have to go back and double check. I'm pretty sure that he's right up there with six uh, one. I just looked it up. Six one. Yeah. I was gonna say. I, I was, I'm pretty sure he was up there with uh, um, uh, Jonathan Frakes and uh, Michael Dorn. You know, Will Riker yeah. and, and Worf, respectively. Now, I believe that Worf and Riker are both like six three. But the reason I even bring that up is because there's a whole little aside about how when they filmed the movie Star Trek Generations, um, they had messed up on some costuming oh, no. and. And and uh, Riker is wearing one of Cisco's suits. Oh, is that right? <laughs> for some of the scenes, so like if you pay attention, there'll be a couple of scenes where you'll like see more of his arm sleeve ah. than, he's, than you're supposed to because it's not quite his big size. enough yep. for him. Right. So yeah, but again, that all just says Cisco's a big man, and for him to be able to get into this space. And not just him into this base, but also he's with O'Brien, Lee Nullis, their various other crew members, everything else. Quark is there. Like, clearly, these are pretty big areas. Right. So, yeah, I, I just, I hope people realize, like, yeah, these are these are structures, guys. They're not, it's not a mud hut or something like that. You know, it's a, it's, yeah, it's like a building. Yeah. No, so that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I guess the thing that always kind of struck me Especially good going back to the the, the Enterprise was that um, like again it was like grading that they were on but and again this was filmed originally in the eighties and these are the nineties so they didn't have like little robot drones that they could film with to like show them you know little robot drones are fixing things uh, but there was one episode from uh, the, the Next Generation where they did have like these little sentient robots that had come to life Exocom yeah that was a fun little episode yeah. where they um. They became self-aware enough to like want self-preservation, and then like mm. part of the episode was they had to convince the like I think there were like three of them or four of them at the end. There were three of them trying to save uh, Picard and Jordy, I believe. Yeah, or th- and one of one of the exocomps ends up having to stay uh, sacrificing itself to save the other two. Yes, yeah, and that's it's a great little episode for what it what, what it was, but it just it was always like. I would imagine they'd have a better, more efficient way of fixing things. But, of course, it's also more cinematic to have our actors in the actual space doing the actual fixing and all that. So I totally forgive yeah. it uh, for for that, even if um, you think they'd have figured well, that out in the future. But And that's always kind of been, like, the thing that was, like, said but rarely seen was that all the ships seem to have these self-help bots, basically, that do basic maintenance. Right. Or fixing of the ship. Like, even in the next generation, you know, Riker um, even comments on the fact that the Enterprise cleans itself. Mm. No one ever says how. No one ever mentions what it is that does it, but <laughs> the Enterprise cleans itself. Yeah. So there must be some kind of automation right. that goes on that we just, we never really got to see. Probably because of, 
you know, both writing constraints and technology of the time. Yeah. Like how do you show oh, for sure. something as advanced, you know? Now, they have gone back and they've, you know, I wouldn't say gone back, but they've since corrected this. Like, again, mild spoiler, on Discovery, they have little robots that are called Dots that do basic maintenance and cleanup and removal of stuff around the nice. ship. They're, you know, they're little, you know, I couldn't really speculate as to the size. They look pretty small. Right. But we see them doing all kinds of different things. And, and there seems to be several different types of them. Right. The ones that are like on the exterior hull and will do repairs to hull breaches. There's ones on the inside that do seem to be like sweeping things up, clearing up, whatever. Right. Then there's other ones they can program to like leave the ship and be like right. a probe of some kind. You know, so a lot of different things that they've done with them. But I mean, it's it's kind of like filling in the gaps. Right. Right. Because technology now allows us to show these kinds of things. And I, I like that. I like that they've done that. But instead of people looking at it that way, there's a lot of people out there who are like, they didn't have those in the 60s. Right. They can't do that. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I again, I want to say that I, I'm glad it was the station where we ended this episode where the action took place because that, that really tied the episode together nicely with the show. Um, we also got um, the general. I'm trying to remember his name. General Crim. Uh, Crim back. Yes, um, he was had a kind of a smaller part in the second episode of this little trilogy. Um, I was a little saddened that he didn't bring up the whole like, oh, Commander Cisco is a good dude. That like, yeah, like the line about I will remember that you didn't like barter the information. Like he didn't say that, but we saw him. It confirmed from the last episode that he actually was at least partially in league with the circle um, to, um, you know, in the last episode, they were intentionally not confronting the circle militarily. Now they're actually working with them. But I want to say that his second in command um, was way like at one point he like directly does something that he told him not to. Like when they get on the station, Krim is like, don't yet call down to Bajor and tell them that we were successful because I, I don't feel like, this, this doesn't make sense to me. But his second in command, which I guess is Luke, uh, Colonel Day. Here we go. A, a Colonel, Colonel, ugh, Colonel Day. He's like, oh, I went ahead and called. And Jero is like, oh, congratulations. And that's when Krim uh, is like, well, I'm not 100% sure. I, I want to double check this. But as soon as like they got off that, that meeting with Jero, he should have been like, you're going to the brig. You just did insubordination. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't have that because that dude was insubordinate this whole episode. Krim yeah. got himself in trouble for that alone. Well, and he, and you know, and Krim is very, uh, he, I was going to say, hands off with Colonel Day. Right. Because he, because Day disobeys him twice. Right. That I can remember. Mm -hmm. So like you said, the first time is when he calls down immediately to inform Jero that they've taken the station and Cisco and the Federation has tucked tail and ran and all this stuff. But yeah, because Krim told him before, he's like, don't be so eager because we don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't know walking into the situation. Right. So, like, don't declare a victory. Mm -hmm. And he's like, nope, going to do it anyway. Right. And then uh, the next thing is when Krim and Day are in Cisco's office. Yeah. And Day and Krim is sitting behind the desk. Right. And he's kind of looking around. You know, the, the Federation computer is still on the desk. And Cisco's baseball is still on the desk, you know. Right. And... Day is like, I, you know, something's going on and I want to send out search parties and go through it deck by deck and find these saboteurs if there are any. And Krim's like, no, don't do that. Right. You're By dividing our forces, you're going to make us vulnerable. Right. 
And and Dave's like, what are you talking about? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, this is, you know, he says something to him like, you know, stop letting your engineer, I'm, you can let your engineers play with the ship. I'm going to go and do my job or whatever. Right. But it's like, they, he never, like, Krim never yeah. interferes with him, never tries to stop right. him, never really raises his voice. He's just kind of like, I'm above all of this. Right. And, I mean, it's to their mutual downfall. Yes. Um, Krim should have been way more hands-on. Right to be an effective leader with Day. And Day also should have been more willing to follow chain of, chain of command. Right. But it, um, it eventually, to me, it made sense because Day was not working for Krim. Yeah. Not really. He was working for Jar. Right. That's he true. was a member of the circle. Right. And that's kind of where their big antagonism finally comes into play because Krim realizes that Day's been holding back right. information. Yeah, I wish, you know? I wish, and I know this is getting hard to do, in the episode, like, it's hard to... I wish at some point Krim had basically said to some other character, like, ah, oh, these circle folks are too antsy. Like, it'd be hard to have that line in there. It's almost like it's better to assume he was just thinking it And as we talk about it. Like, he couldn't express his frustration to any of his subordinates. So if he's having any frustrations, that's the issue. It's like, you know, he's being... If he's the military guy and suddenly the circle military group is being forcibly like integrated into the actual military and suddenly he's having to deal with some upstart lieutenant and he doesn't have the authority to tell him boo, then yeah, that makes sense. So you're right. If if Day was actually more Jaro's man than Krin's man, uh, then that makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, um, Again, I thought Krim was. I liked him in last episode. I thought he was good here. I do think we. Could, I wish there was a little bit more there uh, from him. Um, and in fact, actually, while I think about it, the uh, the bit where Kira and Dax go and get the little. It's not a runabout. It's some other the, ship. No, the suborbital um, flyer. I believe it's called. Right. I'll have to look it up. But I think that's yeah. it. Suborbital. Yeah. Subimpulse radar. There we go. My mistake. <laughs> Subimpulse radar. I, I like the whole bit where they're trying to get the thing working and Dax bumps her head and you know, they're trying to find the fire extinguisher. It's under the it's under the chair and she squirts it and it squirts out this ugly looking little squirt of nothingness. But the whole fact that they were like in a firefight with ships that were off screen, like I thought they could have cut all that out and given us more time on the station. Or, or just other scenes, because I felt like, as as you kind of alluded to, like the final scene where Kira confronts Jaro with the information, and he's like, oh, I'll stand up to scrutiny, I, I'll, I'm i fine to have these documents examined. Like, we never see him get his comeuppance. Like, as far, it seems, by the way that he acts, that he's not aware that the Cardassians were actually helping them, but it also means that we never get to see a moment where he is revealed to have been played, made the fool. Um, I would have cut some of that. We're fighting in this, sh this, you know, sub orbital flyer that's damaged and it gets hit like multiple times. But as soon as Kira gets a shot on one of them, of course it's downed. And it's like, you, you guys went to all this trouble to show us how damaged the ship they're in is now. I would have rather the scene had just been them having to fight this failing ship to the planet. Give us the crash and everything else, but cut out all the nonsense of them fighting, um, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Now, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I remember in the scene, though, uh, the new ships that were fighting against Kira and Dax once they actually got the thing airborne, I believe that the whole point was that um, um, 
these ships were more powerful in space. Right. Once they got them down into into the atmosphere, uh, the atmos- the actual atmosphere, they had more they trouble controlling them. Right. Yeah, that's certainly true. Right. But it didn't seem to communicate that that was a change into like the defenses of the ships themselves. But you're right. right. They're, they're, but I mean, yeah. I could think of it. I guess for me, I was always thinking of it as because they suddenly had to work in atmosphere, they lost a main source of power, and so then that might have weakened a lot of other things because sure. they weren't made to fly fly in atmosphere. Yeah. They were made to fly in and space. And if it so, and if our ship is a suborbital, so it's meant to fly below kind of orbit, in, in between, yeah, yeah, the in between of both, it can yeah. it can kind of handle temporarily. But right. I mean, I never would have crawled in the thing in the first place, especially <laughs> when. To get in, you know, they had that that latch yes, that came down, that didn't look you know, airs- and I was like, yeah. right, I was like, there's no way that thing is airtight, and you're gonna take that from the moon to the planet, you're gonna die. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's exactly uh, what I thought. I was like, there's no the way. Thing. Yeah, there are definitely um, moments where you have to hold your breath and just let the fantasy of the. Sh- oh, they were holding yeah. their breath all right, <laughs> holding their breath all right. Um, yeah, but. I also I really enjoyed the the Lunar Five scene of of them and uh, because uh, I feel like this was like what I was kind of waiting for a little bit more with Dex yes. like you know they referred to the fact that it was her second host Tobin yes. who had uh, experience with um, these these raiders yeah. right but we didn't get lost in this diatribe about who he was the symbiont yeah yeah right. It was just this was something that he had that gave Dax knowledge right. that she was now able to you know employ herself yes. and put her own little twist on it with her own scientific background. Right. And plus, we get to see like she seemed way more like in in control of herself. She was way more sure of herself. And all of her scenes in this last episode, I felt like Dax was more, um, I guess, informed. Sure. You know, as a character, mm-hmm. she was more filled in for things. Right. And I really liked that, like seeing that the character was actually, you know, doing something, yeah. doing something for once. Right. So, you know, because I mean, that's what we complained about the most during the first season was like such great potential with Dax. And it seems like we're squandering it left and right. right and yet here she is finally. Yeah. She's now kind of stepping up and doing stuff. So I'm glad to see that, you know, there is a. Uh, an increase in her character's I agree. Uh, profile. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It was a great little line at the end. Uh, well, I guess it's when they're in the middle of getting it fixed up and she's like, you know, thank you. What's his name? Um, where was the Vedic Pariah? No, 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 the, 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 the Dax, the previous Dax host. Tobin. Tobin. Yeah. Like, thanks Tobin. Um, like, yeah, there was, it was, that's like, that's what we expect from a trill. Like trill have life, life experiences from multiple lifetimes to pull from. Here we go. Let's do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to say there are two other things about this episode that were great. Uh, in fact, they're the same thing. Uh, that um, Cisco gave a great speech and Lee Nollis gave, gave a great speech. Uh, this episode starts off basically like 30 minutes after the last episode where um, Cisco had said, I'm going to need to get all the Federation equipment off the s- space station, wink, wink. Um, and so here he is telling everybody like, hey – like, this is my plan. I'm planning on sticking around and using, like, we're going to have to get all the stuff off. We have to get the people off. Um, and convinces pretty much every Federation officer. I don't see any of them stepping uh, away. Uh, he convinces them all to stay and help out and do what they can to um, save the station. Um, and it's a great speech. He takes his time. He's calm. He's direct. He's uses emotional appeals in the sense of, like, hey, you, like, you're engaged to a Bajoran, to one of them, and 
Um, you've become friends, but at no point does he come off as like pleading or or desperate or mm-hmm. or trying to like convince them of something that he doesn't like. He doesn't lie to them. He says this is going to be tough, and um, that was a great scene. And then when Lee Nollis tells the Bajorans. Um, you need to, or, you know, we're, we're Bajorans. This is our station. Why are we losing our minds? Um, when it's all these people are truly in danger. It's like, it's not like the, the, the Bajorans that are coming to the station are going to hurt us. We're Bajorans. Um, they're the ones in danger. Give them t- space to go. That was a great speech as well. So two great speeches from two characters in this episode. Yeah. Lee Nellis definitely gave a very strong performance and, you know, considering this is a, you know, a trilogy essentially, um, seeing how he starts out to how he ends up, I also feel like he kind of grew into his role as well. You know, he was right. way more um, dynamic here in both the second and this final third episode than he was, of course, in the first, which you would kind of expect considering in the first one, he's very much a, he's a victim. He was a, you know, he's a prisoner of war working right. in a prison camp for 10 years. Right. So, you know, to see him now, he's kind of come and he's, slowly stepping into that role of leader and you know even though he doesn't really want to do that every time that he does it it's very impactful it's it, his words obviously carry weight mm-hmm. and it's almost like you really do want him to finally just like step up man just embrace it because whether you realize it or not you're really good at it you have a way of swaying people and we need that right now you know like when when the People were rioting about having a seat on the turbo on the on the um, runabout. Right. His speech right there calmed a lot of them down. All of a sudden, they were all just willing to stay. You right. know. And then he's also the voice that finally convinces General Krim, "Hey, you've got this wrong." So it's just like he's he's definitely got the power. He's got the the charisma to do it, and he's and he's right. He's on the side of right here. So. Definitely seeing him step into it and work with it was right. much better, finally, than seeing him always kind of like, he'll fight, but he kind of cowers first. Right. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love... But now on... Oh, I was going to say, I also love the little schemes that they did to capture some of the Bajoran fighters, like the... Oh, the hollow suite's on. That must be they're inside, and they go in and. Oh, how stupid! <laughs> how stupid could you get? I mean, I that was my first thought when I watched it, and it's like, oh, the the hollow suite is on. Okay, someone's running a simulation, and Dade just barges right in yeah. with all of his officers. Instant capture. It's like you didn't. I mean, can you not scan? Did you yeah. not just? What is wrong with you? Just run a scan. Yeah, it was so obviously a ploy. Oh, yeah, funny little moment. It would get such easy. <laughs> oh man, thank God for the transporter because he'd have been stuck in yeah. there. Yeah, you know? and then he's like, he goes but, to to Krim and is like, "Oh, nothing happened. Don't worry about us. Uh, they right, didn't say right, anything yeah. of importance. Oh, nothing, nothing of consequence. <laughs> yeah. Didn't say anything." Yeah. Uh, but that also brings to what I was going to talk about too. The the uh, back to our our resistance fighters. And their leisure suits. I just can't get over it, you know? Uh, especially Dr. Bashir. Like, he's just, he's in all this blue, and it's all, like, crushed velvet or something. I don't know. It just, he looks so strange to me, just lounging about in the Jeffrey's tube, you know? And especially when he goes to take his prisoners the first time through, you know? He's just kind of, like, sitting up there with his leg hanging out. And he's like, aha, mm-hmm. you don't want to touch that. Yeah. It's like, I mean... It's a life or death situation, Doc. You look way too cool. Like, <laughs> calm it down. Yeah. 
And then he also had a great scene with Quark. You know, they're trying to move through the Jeffrey's tubes, and Quark is pushing that heavy suitcase yes. full of platinum, you know. And he's like, Quark, leave it, <laughs> leave it. And Quark's like, I'd never leave it. And he's like, it's full of my mementos yes. and keepsakes and family albums. And he's like, it's oh, full of gold breast platinum. platinum. <laughs> yeah. This... And he's like, how did you know? And he's like, your mother told me. <laughs> yeah, I but forgot that line. Born. Yeah. <laughs> and, Quark, and Quark just rushes him real quick. You know, you and he's never, like, never make fun of a Frankie's mother. mother. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great scene. It was great. Everything from Quark is as it was great. The whole bit of like, hey, let's go promise seats to people and we can make money off them. And then they overbooked mm-hmm. it. And they, Cisco is... He, it gives a heavy sigh when Quark says, I might have oversold. <laughs> but not just a heavy sigh. He, like, grabs Quark and That's almost true. Well, it. Like, he does that, but then, like, he puts him down and does the heavy sigh. Like, he has to go take care of it. Um, and then he's dragging the suitcase, and he's like, oh, my brother has a seat. And he's like, um, I've already checked the manifest, and uh, he's already left with a Dabo girl. <laughs> and Quark is like, he's been double-crossed by his own brother. Like, of all the times that Quark got something over on his brother, this is like the one time it ever turned the other way. <laughs> and you just had to know, like, I feel like, you know, they, it's the only time that Quark would have been willing to split profits because he can't carry everything. All right. So you just know that Rom's suitcase was probably loaded down with Latinum too. Right. But instead of waiting on his brother, he took his suitcase and a double. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's like, and I, even when they were talking about it initially, he was like, "Do you think that I would really trade your life for some profit?" And he was like, uh-huh. "Yes." He's like, it would have to be the deal of a lifetime. Yeah. He's like, "Yeah, my lifetime." <laughs> you know, so it's a great exchange between uh, the two of yeah. them. So yeah, our, you know, again, you know, Quark never fails to deliver for us. Yeah. You know, um, and even stuff like if you don't necessarily, if, if you haven't warmed to Rom just yet. Even his exchanges, when they're, especially when they're with Quark, mm-hmm. are really good. Yeah. You know, so I, I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, we got to catch up a little bit with uh, Jake and Nog, you know, as they're getting separated for the evacuation. That's right. Jake is going to um, the other, the Federation colony, and um, Rom is going off to the non-Federated uh, alien right. colony. You know, so they're not going to be together, and they're just, you know, kind of sad at first. We're very optimistic about the fact that their friendship has withstood being from different races, different species, yeah. their fathers objecting, right. uh, all the stuff that they've they've overcome. And he's just like, no stupid coup d'état is going yeah. to stop us. Yeah, either. it's a great, you know, yeah. So, no, great Yeah, moment. he tries to say coup d'état, and just, uh, Jake is like, that's French, and then... um. Yeah, he's like, think, human, have any Ferengi or other of your species ever been such friends like us? Yeah, great moment between the two of them. <sighs> great stuff. Yeah. So, with all this great stuff, of course, we have to ask, what was not so great? Well, I think I've already mentioned my part in the sense that I think yeah. that the the fighting and the on the, the, the suborbital, whatever we call it, was a little bit unnecessary. And I think cut away from the runtime enough that we could have used it elsewhere. But what do you think? Well, uh, you know, for me, I'm always going to go to certain aspects of character development. Um, I definitely would have wanted to see more of the interplay between um, Vedic Win and Jaro Exit. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. we, we kind of saw a little bit of that in the second episode of this, the second part of this. Right. We, there's 
something going on between them right. that almost hints at it being more than just two people trying to consolidate power. Right. You know, what is it? Like, as much as wind makes my skin crawl, you know, um, I don't know. Seeing some kind of development there with her and Jaro, I feel like would have been would have just added more to this right. to give it a little bit more complexity and to also make her ultimate betrayal of Jaro more um more convincing or I guess more given a, a better layer of, of complexity. Right. So we didn't really see that here. She just really kind of briefly separates herself from him because we didn't really get a much from them anyway. I guess I would have liked to see more of the a good split between what's going on DS nine and what's going on on base right. seeing the FedEx and they're voting and they're talking and right. who's doing what behind closed doors and just kind of expanding that way a bit, because right. we haven't really seen yeah. a whole lot from Bajor. Yeah. And, you know, we've been told over and over again, how important Bajor is. And yet this is the first time we've ever been inside the minister's chamber. Yes. Yeah. You know, true. We we've never been there. Right yet. now, we've been to the the monastery a couple of different times. We've seen a few different rooms right. there, mm-hmm. but I mean, this is the first time we've been somewhere that's actually more politically leaning instead of yes. religious. Right, and I wish we had done more with that. Yeah, we did. Um, we did have a small scene between the two of them where Jaro promises um, Win that when she becomes the leader of Bajor, he'll have her made Kai, and she seems to respond to that. And it's very clear that they're attracted to each other, but not to each other as individuals, but just to the power that each one of them holds. Like, Jaro's attracted to her because she could be the Kai, and therefore she could have an a, the ally in the religious sphere, and vice versa, for Win. But Win is too savvy. Like, she was always kind of hesitant every time Jaro was, was talking with her, and was always willing to say like i don't know i don't know and so as soon as anything comes as soon as kira shows up with evidence that shakes that foundation she doesn't like jump to to jaro's side and pretend to you know be on his side until the very end like nope as soon as the ship starts to sink she's gonna certainly find that extra lifeboat and if if it turns out the titanic's going down hey we ain't got no space on this you know door floating out here in space so Sorry if you have to go down with the ship, but that's how it's going to work out. <laughs> Would you say that she's a good representation of, you know, you know of the neutral evil, I guess? Um, Using the D and... Because she, yeah. She, go ahead. Yeah. Because she never, she never, like you said, she never fully commits to any side, but she definitely makes it a point to be like, you know, the, I have my own agenda. Right. And how anybody can fit into her agenda seems to be um, whether or not you think of her as evil, right? right? Because she's convinced at one point that Cisco is basically the devil, right? right? But her real goal there was to solidify her own power, and she tries to eliminate Vedic Bariah. So then we see her here, and it's kind of the same thing. She's... She's embracing the circle, which is, uh, you know, wants Bajor for Bajorans and excluding all aliens. Right. But that also feeds into her broader narrative that we've seen so far and that she's trying to get rid of Cisco. Right. She doesn't like him in conflict with her own ability to have power right. as a religious figurehead herself. Right. She doesn't like the fact that Cisco is the emissary. Oh, yeah. And anything that can undermine him and get, get that station out of his control... Mm-hmm. That's what she's looking for. Right. So did she totally throw in with Jaro in the circle? 
maybe, maybe not. Yeah. It seems like she had her own again, she had her own agenda there. Right. And so when the when the tide turns kind of switched on on Jaro, she makes sure that focus is on Jaro. Yes. It's not her, it's it's him. Right. And then now everybody and people quickly, you know, move no one even thinks of the fact that she supported him. He was going to be a member of her order. Like, none of that stuff. Right. You know? Yeah. And uh, that's another way that she kind of, like, skirts skirts by and comes out the other side of it. Very shady, but still, she's on at least the right side for now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she plays her uh, her cards right in this episode, for sure. That's one thing about Wynn. I mean, I guess that we've, what we've seen of her so far, she's very clever with her devious maneuver yes you know? yeah she's got that figured out um so as i always like to ask we've already talked about good performances because we talked about cisco and lee right who would be our bad who would be the we didn't really need them here or you know in this episode um, I don't think there was any bad ones. Um, I think O'Brien was a little bit, uh, he's not absent. I mean, there's certainly actually a scene where Keiko is like, come with me now. Like we have to abandon this you know, station. Your daughter and I need you. And he's like, I, I gotta stay like, this is my job. Um, so that was a good scene. It was a small scene from O'Brien. Um, Small, but I feel like it was important. Yeah, you know, highlighting this family life aspect, especially for the fact that they're all still really new to this area, yes. to the station, to each other. And just you know? a couple episodes ago, a terrorist attack blew up Keiko's school. So, right, and she's probably had enough of it. You know, mm-hmm. like her. In fact, that episode could be seen as you know what kicks off everything that we've got going on here right. to a certain extent. Us beginning to realize that things are not as stable on Bajor as they're trying to make us believe, right. you know? Um, and so here she is once again being forced to choose between, you know, her own personal safety, her family safety, and then this so-called greater good right. for these aliens that they barely know. They're in a sector they've never been in. It's not the Enterprise anymore. Yeah. You know, they're certainly not on Earth anymore. Yeah. So she's got to do things, got to do things different. Yes. And with them raising a very small child, yep. you know, yep. she's trying to protect her family. And I know that the character of Keiko gets a lot of negative backlash <laughs> for her, her constant, for what people say, you know, her constant, she's, they say that she's always trying to drag Miles down, like always making him stop. And he's trying to be this particular kind of officer. And she's always trying to make him like reconsider and things like that. But I'm like, I feel like it's a great representation of married life. Like, yes, you may have had, a certain, you know, vision for your life at one point. But once you chose to marry mm. and bring someone into that, then you have to also consider 100%. their life, oh, yeah. their life plan, yeah. you know? And it seems to me like Keiko has done a lot to be accommodating to what Miles has going on, right. you know? Things worked out for them okay when they were on the Enterprise because, you know, they were always traveling together, right. you know? the sh- Wherever the ship was going, they were both there. Now on the station, it seems like she doesn't really have much to do. Yeah, her career's kind of ended a bit. Now she's she became a teacher, but now that's pretty much over. Right. So now she's in this situation. We don't know what she's been up to. Right. We you kind of are left to infer she hasn't really been doing much other than taking care of her family. Yes. And now here comes this other threat from these people who already destroyed her career. Right. Now they could be potentially destroying her personal yes. life. 
and she's trying to protect yeah. it. So well, and O'Brien. Yeah, on, she gets a lot of heat here. Yeah, and O'Brien on on the Enterprise, he was never well. I mean, he went on away missions like maybe early on, but usually most of the time he was there on the the transporter. He was the guy for that. And if she was over there in the science division, you know, taking care of the, the botany element of things, you know, they both had relatively cushy jobs, even if it was a dangerous enterprise you know ship you know flagship of the of the fleet but now that things are supposed to be more relaxed for her as you know just a teacher she's actually working in a dangerous part of the of the galaxy and her husband's now actually like again in the first episode of the season when when o'brien went on the away mission with kira to go rescue lee Nallis, i thought he kind of did that a little too easily like hey you have a kid yeah. and you have a wife back home and here in this episode we kind of see that side of the equation. Like Keiko is a little bit like, "Hey, come on, let's let's you and us go together." And O'Brien decides yeah. to stick to his job and his duty. Um, and it really just makes you appreciate all of the people in our, you know, like the military and 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 everyone else who has people who are risking their lives and having to be go through the stress of that. So, to anyone out there listening, like again, thank you for your service and. Uh, for the sacrifice you make and the the stress you sometimes go through waiting for loved ones to come back home, so. Well, I think that we have pretty much wrapped up this episode as best that we can. I did have one other thing I wanted uh, to say. If you if you let, oh, yeah, well, go. For I just it. wanted to say that I really liked. Uh, you know, when Lee Nollis dies, uh, before he dies, um, Cisco had told him like you gotta step up and be the leader that your people need you to be. Like, you can't let death be the easy way out. And so when he dies, saving Cisco's life, he says, I guess I took the easy way out, or something to that effect. Um, and then O'Brien, at the very end, is having that conversation with Cisco. Off the hook. Off the hook, that's right. That's right, because Cisco says to him, they're talking in one of the Jeffrey's tubes or whatever. And that's when Cisco is telling him that basically Lee Nollis is his ace in the hole. Yes. And Lee is like, I don't see it. He's like, I'm willing to die for my people, right. sure, but I don't know. And Cisco's like, Yeah, dying's easy. Dying gets you off the hook. Right. But living and being the example that they need you to right. be, that's the hard right. part. And then when he dies, that's what Lee says to Cisco right before he dies. Right. He says, I'm, I'm off the hook after. Yes, me. that's exactly the and line he, dies. he says. Yeah. There's and that steel trap memory again. You remember those lines well. <laughs> um, but yeah, as they're um, reminiscing about him and O'Brien's like, you know, Kira kind of gave him a little bit more credit than he actually turned out to deserve. Like he was just a man, it turns out. And then O'Brien like interrupts him and says, I'm going to remember him how the Bajorans will remember him as a hero who fought for his people and who gave them an example to follow. Um, the reason I thought that was kind of important is because I've talked about in previous episodes how like the noble lie is something in storytelling that is very very common like um we tell a, a lie so that the the culture or the group in the story or whatever you know like in like some of the dune books the prequels um or 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 the dark knight from batman like the the idea of a noble lie is is a story trope and this is kind of like the positive version of that like they're not lying about Lee Nollis. Lee Nollis was a great dude. They've burnished his image to such a point where he's actually kind of become more mythological than he actually deserves to be. But Lee Nollis wasn't exactly not that. It's just he right. didn't get, they, get a chance to fully become yeah. that that they wanted him to be. Yeah. They, they keep 
the negative of his narrative out, like all the self doubt that he yes. had, all the questioning that he did, right. all of the fact that most of the the action that he took, he took with such resignation. Yes. It wasn't with it wasn't with enthusiasm that he embraced any part of it. In fact, the only time that we ever really see Lee do anything enthusiastically, it was when he was returning the favor of saving Kira when she was kidnapped right. and he volunteered for that mission. Yes. He said that's why he's like, I don't know how to be a Navar, right. but I'm a good soldier. I take orders yes. well, plus I owe her. Right. That's what he says. Right. So it's it's more on those lines. Like it's it's very basic for him. Right. So whenever, but whenever anybody wants him to do something more than that, like give a speech or to maneuver or whatever, he's very reluctant right. to do it. And he's like, I'm not that guy. Yes. And that's what Cisco keeps kind of pointing out to him because this is not the first time that Cisco has given him this kind of lecture. But every time that he does, Cisco's kind of reminding him that, hey, you know, we need you to understand that you're you're already more than this, right. and you have a unique opportunity to do something that will be better for your people right. with very little effort. Right. Yes. Like you're you're making it harder than it really needs to yes. be because you they've already built you up. Right. You're already up there. Yeah. You don't have to climb up there anymore. You're already there. Right. Now use your position right. and just Bring them forward. Yeah, give those speeches you gave in the in the outside the runabout. That's what we need. We need more of those speeches. We need more of those encouraging. You're Bajorans, and you can do this, and you're and you have the opportunity and the and the courage to do what's right. Those are the speeches that we needed him to make, and he gets cut off from being able to do any more. Um, yeah, and I just I'm just gonna say it. That whole scene there at the end um, reminded me of the uh, the Batman Begins moment where Ra's al Ghul is telling Batman that you know if you make yourself more than just a man, if you de de devote yourself to an ideal, you'll become something else entirely. And then when later Batman or uh, Bruce Wayne is talking about becoming Batman, he says, "As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed. But as a symbol, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible." And uh, yeah, Lee Nollis is kind of the Batman of the Deep Space Nine crew. <laughs> and well, also to touch on your thoughts about the the noble lie, um, to me this is one that comes up a lot in Star Trek. Like if you go back and watch all of it, yeah. you know. And um, the thing about it is, what we're always told from the Starfleet perspective is. You should always tell the truth, mm. no matter how painful, mm. no matter the potential outcome, right. you should tell the truth. The truth is more important than anything else. Right. And Deep Space Nine was the first one that really came along and was like, mm, we want you to tell the truth. Yeah. But there are times when the lie that's already in place is better than what the truth is would be mm, okay and it's not to say it's not to say that we're saying create a lie right we're just saying that look at the whole situation and in this sense um is what's there better and then then what could be revealed if we tell the truth right and so with a, a little foreknowledge a little foreshadowing there this is not the first time that this will come up for yeah. us, as we'll see in subsequent episodes. Oh boy! And uh, so we'll be we'll be talking about this a lot. So you might as well just write that down. <laughs> uh, the noble lie versus always telling the truth that will become a theme of this show. Mm. And I also think it's one of the reasons that this show. Um, oh yeah. Um, with fans, 
because it was it was just so different right. from the way that things are presented in Next Generation and everything right. else. I think that there were just times where people just couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that we've got so many officers operating within this shade of gray. Yeah. When, you know, you were stacking them up against people like Picard, who was just always like, you know. Always right. Very, yeah. yeah he, yeah, it wasn't even a matter. Yeah, like he, he had his moments where he had his moral quandaries and he had to do his whole being a loner, introspective, right. whatever. But when he stepped onto that bridge, he knew he was right. Yeah. And he directed the rest of the crew from that, from that center. Well, and again, the politics of the Bajoran people will continue to play into the future of Deep Space Nine. With Next Generation, most of the time, he can zip away on his ship. Just, yeah. Next, again, I, ramifications. I have made my decree. Yeah. I have made my decree. Yeah. Engage. You know, yeah. they're out. So, I love yeah. how you said I love how every time you said engage, you would do that little hand thing. It's just oh, yeah. so perfect. Like, no, <laughs> they can't see you do the hand gesture. Why do you do it? But he does it, and it's great. <laughs> every, yeah, and he didn't do it every time, but it was a very much a trademark. Ninety like, percent, yeah. Um, my other favorite is, you know, like we had the whole Picard maneuver. So we knew what that was mm. from his battle uh, with the Ferengi yes. ship. But everybody knows that the real Picard maneuver is when he goes to sit down and he pulls yes, the uniform yes, down. Yeah, yep. That's the real Picard maneuver. So, Whenever he's uh, flustered, he also pulls it down. He's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so funny aside about that is that is that the truth behind that maneuver is that really the uniform really did ride up yeah. and he used to like cut oh, into sure. Patrick Stewart's yeah. neck. And so that's why he would do it, but it became such a yeah. such a thing that like they were like you got to you got to do oh, it yeah. like we love yeah. it so you got to do it. It's funny when other characters so, do it. Yeah. Like you see like Riker do it or something. It's like yeah they're doing the, they're doing the Picard. <laughs> well, Riker has his own maneuver with his. So he's got two yep. of them. Riker's is Step, to throw the leg over the chair, over the chair yeah. to sit down, Chad. and then the other one is just yeah the other one is just propping the leg up on something. Yes. He was always propping his leg yes. up, and it's just like, what's wrong? With Again, you? I have to. I know I've already mentioned it, but the uh, college humor skit, Star Trek versus Star Wars, the whole Riker bit in the background is just him putting his leg on things. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, anyway, well, guys, I believe that is truly it. For us. <laughs> so we will uh, wrap it up right there. We ventured off from Deep Space Nine into. Uh, next gen but that's okay it's all trek and we live everything Boom. so we're good but as always um you can catch us uh back here next week and you can also follow us on twitter instagram or not instagram sorry twitter facebook and all the various other social medias except instagram apparently um but we'd love to hear from you so just definitely do reach out if you ever want to and um listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts i happen to do it on spotify and it seems to work out pretty well so Hopefully you'll check us out there. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.